I want to continue on the same thing that I was talking about last night. And last night we talked about, and uh, I, I hope we're all able to agree that there's a difference between pain, uh, which is the pain and the displeasure associated with the physical senses, and suffering, which uh, arises in the mind. So we see that suffering, suffering originates in the mind. And we also saw that uh, suffering, when it arises, is related to a kind of resistance that takes place. So what is suffering? And where does it come from? Suffering, if you think about it, what exactly is suffering? It is, it's a kind of emotion, is it not? Yes. And it's uh, a kind of mental state. We, it's a mental state that we find ourselves in. Suffering arises as emotion and we find ourselves in a mental state. And the other thing that we talked about last night is that suffering is a kind of dissatisfaction. And it actually works the other way around. Dissatisfaction is a kind of suffering. So dissatisfaction and suffering are really the same thing. What we call suffering is just a more extreme form of it. But that mental state that we call suffering uh, is a mental state of dissatisfaction. Any questions about that? Is that pretty straightforward and obvious for everyone? Okay. Now, where does it come from? Where does that emotion come from? It comes from the mind. The mind manufactures it. There's some part of your mind, and its job is to create a mental state of suffering. So we have to ask, well, why? Why does it do that? What causes it to do that? And what purpose does it serve? Because now that we begin to understand suffering better, then we have to ask ourselves these questions. If my mind is creating my suffering, why is it doing that? And does it, does it serve some purpose? Is there some reason for it? And also, is there something that I can do to change that? Dissatisfaction. We experience dissatisfaction. When we have physical pain, it causes a sense of dissatisfaction to arise and it creates suffering. What does the state of dissatisfaction do to us? It agitates us. It agitates us. Yes, that's a good way to describe it. And what's the result of that agitation? In the most general sense, yes. In the most general sense, what it's doing, it agitates us, it makes us restless, it makes us feel like we need to do something. 
it motivates us to take some kind of action, to make some kind of change, right? So, uh, whatever its cause, and uh, there's many different things that uh, can trigger the mind to produce a state of dissatisfaction. When dissatisfaction or suffering is present, we feel this urgent uh, tension that makes us want to do something, basically to make the dissatisfaction go away, right? Let's look once again at the causes of suffering and be really clear before we go on. Is suffering ever caused uh, like, we made a distinction last night between uh, unpleasant sensations. Bodily pain is an unpleasant sensation. And we talked about how suffering arises in the mind's reaction to that. A bad odor is an unpleasant sensation. A bitter taste in the mouth is an unpleasant sensation. Uh, a... a loud and discordant sound is an unpleasant sensation. And uh, a bright light of, uh, of colors that don't go well together has an unpleasant quality to us, to it. But what we call, talked about as suffering is something that arises only in the mind. And so we make this clear distinction between unpleasant sensations and the mental unpleasantness that we call suffering or dissatisfaction. And so when we, if that is clear in our mind, then one thing else that follows from that, and that we want to be clear on, and that's that our suffering then, all of our suffering originates in our mind. It doesn't originate from the external world. I mean, after all, the physical world, the material world, the external world, what do we know about it? Only, only what our senses tell us about it, right? And if the senses themselves can be pleasant or unpleasant, but suffering is something the mind does, then we begin to see that our suffering does not come from the external world. Now, somebody may say something to us, and we may experience unhappiness and suffering uh, by what they say. Somebody may say something to us and it may make us feel sad. But it's not, it's not the sounds that made us feel sad. It was the information that came in. And so the information came into our mind and our mind somehow decided, oh, turn on the suffering machine. And the mind is flooded with suffering, right? It's an interesting thing, this, this suffering. The opposite of suffering would be joy, right? Or happiness, bliss. And you can sort of think of it like a color, you know. We're, we're in a place, we might green the color of, uh, of, of happiness and joy. So we're in a place where there's nice green plants and, and a beautiful uh, floor polished stone floor, different shades of green intermingling with each other, and the walls are painted a nice pale shade of, of green, and, you know, we're in this lovely green environment, 
And suffering is like a, a different colored light. It's like a red light that comes on. And so the mental state of suffering or dissatisfaction arises and you know what happens when you shine red light on green? It turns into sort of a browny gray color, right? a blutch color, right? Not, not a very nice color. And so that's, that's what happens to our mind when suffering comes on. So we, we need to know why it is that we are doing this to ourselves. Why, why does our mind do this to itself? And we can already see, okay, it has something to do, must have something to do with the effect it produces, which to me is to make us agitated and restless and want to take some kind of action and do something. So this is where we get to the second truth, the origin of suffering. The origin of suffering is in what has been called craving, and the craving is of two kinds, desire and aversion, because one is the craving to have something or to experience something, and the other is the craving to get rid of something, uh, to destroy it or to cease experiencing something, right? So craving has both its negative and positive forms called desire and aversion. But the reason that uh, we say that craving is the origin of suffering is because if we look and see, this suffering was a form of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is wanting things to be different than they are. And what is desire? It's wanting to have something that you don't have is desire. Or wanting to get rid of something that you do have that you don't like. That's also uh, craving. So it's dissatisfaction. It's wanting things to be different than the way they are. So if there's something, if you see something that you want, then there is uh, an urge to obtain that thing. What the craving is actually working on is the pleasant and unpleasant experiences that we have. The craving doesn't initially, it's not yet attached to any particular thing. When craving arises, it's attached to pleasant Pleasantness and unpleasantness. So, as with, uh, you know, if you have, if if you have a pleasant experience, you experience sensual pleasure. You want to experience more sensual pleasure, and so craving is that urge to have more of the pleasure that you experience. You that comes very quickly. If you have a pleasurable experience and the experience ends, it's over with, it's very quickly followed by the desire to have more of that pleasurable experience. You find that every time you have a meal, right? You take a, a spoonful of something and it tastes very good. I want some more of that. And, you, and craving leads, craving is the desire to continue that pleasure, to repeat that pleasure, to have it again. And it leads to the physical actions of taking some more food and chewing it and swallowing it. If you have pain, then craving takes the opposite form. You want to get rid of the pain, so you do something to make the pain go away. And the state of unsatisfaction will stay there. So craving is the impulsion to pursue or to hold on to pleasure or to 
eliminate or avoid pain. So we'll look at these both a little close, more closely so that we can see that indeed they pretty much encompass the whole variety of things that produce craving. Uh, when we have something and it, it pleases us, we don't want to lose that. So even before the pleasure has gone, the craving is already arriving. We already have this impulsion to hold on to it, to prevent its loss. As it starts to go away, we experience stronger and stronger dissatisfaction and the need to pursue it. So it's both in wanting what we don't have and also wanting to hold on to what we do have. And of course, the reality is that everything is impermanent. So there is no pleasure that we have that we can hold on to. It's always passing away. And our sources of pleasure, uh, sensual pleasure, the sensations, uh, they require some sort of repeated, a recreation of the circumstances that give rise to the pleasure because they're always passing away. So there's not so much difference between wanting something that you completely don't have and wanting to hold on to what you do have. The dynamics are the same. You, because if you already have it, you're already losing it. And there is a desire to hold on to it. And, of course, we, we know this. If you, uh, uh, anything that you have, the thought of losing it, if, if it were stolen or destroyed or lost or something like that, is disturbing to you. Sufficiently so that it always activates this, uh, uh, this need in us to protect what we have. And so we do many things all the time to protect the things that we already have. So we see that even the subtle dissatisfaction of the fear of losing what we already have is always operating. That's when, if you look, if you look closely, if you if you look at it at the superficial level of the world, you know, then they seem to be similar but not quite the same. But if you look more closely, the thing that you have or the thing that you don't have that you want, both of them, you're viewing them that this is the thing that gives me pleasure, and. You, you want that pleasure. You have the urge to obtain or, or sustain that pleasure. So the craving is the same. The urge is the same. The specific action at least to might be different. If it's something that you don't have, the action will be something uh, of, of a slightly different nature to obtain it than if it's something that you do have that you want to protect. But the craving aspect of it and the rootedness of that in, in the experience of pleasure in association with it, that's basically the same. And the same thing is true of the other pair regarding pain. If you have, if there, if you have some source of pain uh, already present, of course you want to get rid of it. If you foresee the possibility that something will cause you pain, then you want to avoid it. 
the craving is the same. It's the craving to, or it is the aversion side of craving that wants to eliminate pain. It wants to eliminate either the pain that you have or the pain that you might have in the future. So up to this point, up to this point, you can see that, uh, yes, they are similar. Beyond this point, they become different. But up to this point, this is the craving part. The craving is that internal compulsion, that impulsion, that drive towards pleasure and away from pain. That's what we mean when we say craving. And of course, we're speaking of it in, in the most obvious form, which is uh, the pleasure of the senses and the pain of the body. But you can see that it applies to uh, other kinds of, uh, of pleasure and pain as well. Mental, that we, we have mental pleasures. There are things that satisfy us uh, mentally, even though they may not involve a specific sensory pleasure, they provide us with satisfactions, things that we pursue. Does it or does it not give you pleasure when somebody praises you and says what a wonderful person you are? Feel good or feel bad? Feels good, right? What's that? <laughs> well, if, if, if it's somebody, okay, we'll specify. If somebody that you, you yourself hold in high regard and you believe they're being honest says, says something to you, says what a wonderful person you are, does that not make you feel good? Yes. Okay. If somebody you hold in high regard and you think is being honest says something bad about you to your face, how do you feel? I might like it a lot. <laughs> just because I can learn from that. <laughs> well, you like to be difficult, but... <laughs> you wouldn't like it. Yeah, we'll go with you. Okay. So, but you see, it's not the sound of the words that's making you feel good in one case and feel bad in the other at all. It's, the, it's, it's something that is happening entirely on the mental level. That, oh, this, this person thinks highly of you, makes you feel good inside. And of course, we, we experience this. We, we do many things in our lives in order to be liked, to be admired, to be respected. And likewise, we do many things in order to avoid uh, being, being disliked or, or, or uh, disdained or, uh, or, or looked down upon. So it's the, same, it's the same thing. Mental pleasure and mental uh, unhappiness or displeasure in, in, what, in any form that it arises also gives rise to craving. The urge, the urge to have more of that pleasure or to have the pleasure you don't have, the urge to uh, avoid the pain or get, get rid of the pain that you already do have unpleasantness that you're already experiencing. So uh, if we reflect, you could probably quickly satisfy yourself that indeed everything that you can imagine that is pleasurable in one form or another, mental or physical, 
tends to give rise to this craving, this urge to have more of it, and or if it uh, is something that uh, that is the opposite, that is causing unpleasantness anyway, it gives rise for it gives rise to this craving, this urge uh, to avoid it or get rid of it. Now, of course, we are we we have sophisticated minds, and so we can look into the future, and we can accept unpleasantness of various kinds in the present moment if we foresee greater reward and pleasure coming in the future, right? And likewise, uh, we can, uh, uh, just as we can uh, accept uh, some unpleasantness now for the sake of greater pleasantness in the future, we can, through the acting act of action of our intelligence, we can forego some pleasure in the present in order to avoid some greater unhappiness in the future. Although, if you think about it, we often don't do this. Often we do. But those, those occasions stand out in our lives when we, when we do something, we succumb to a temptation for an immediate gratification in some sort. We respond to the craving because the craving, the urge arises for the immediate pleasure. And then later on when we're suffering the consequences downstream, you know, we say it wasn't worth it. Why did why did I do that? As we become more mature in our behavior, as we learn, then in the future we're less likely to make the same kind of mistake. So what happens there is that it's still the same thing operating. When the craving arises to pursue the immediate pleasure, we call to mind the future suffering that is going to come downstream to that. And then that, holding that in mind, will arouse the craving to avoid that unpleasantness, and so that, that will modify our, our action. But you see, it's always the same thing. Yes? What if you crave good stuff? Yes, well, go ahead. Okay, what, what's an You okay? You see, the craving. Is there anything? What is the problem with the craving? It's the it's the dissatisfaction, and uh, it's well. The other problem with the craving is sometimes it uh, it makes us do a lot of things that ultimately don't really satisfy us and cause us more, more problems in the end. Craving is just a natural uh, impulsion that arises in the mind that turns on the dissatisfaction machine and creates the agitation and urge to take action. If you love learning something, the reason that you love learning something is that you experience a mental pleasure when you're learning something new. And so there is a craving. The craving is not really for the learning. The craving is for the pleasure. The craving is the impulsion to obtain that pleasure. And uh, to learn something new typically requires making some kind of effort and perhaps foregoing some other thing, you know, you, uh, uh, in, in order to, to do it. But it provides you the motivation so that you will take the necessary action 
you will forego some other thing, you will spend the money or drive across the city or, you know, there's all kinds of things that are involved with putting yourself in a situation where you can learn something. In that case, the outcome is all right. The outcome is great. Um, but, and yeah, let's just leave it at that. So can you see how craving is operating continuously all the time in all of the things that you're doing? And not everything you're doing is bad, of course. Many of the things you're doing, like learning, or uh, being kind to other people, uh, there's all kinds of things that we do. But if we look into them, we will find that we are moved to, to action ultimately by uh, some kind of craving that's related to pleasure and pain. And that's quite all right. That's the way we're constructed. And so let's carry it to the next step and say, okay, craving is just the impulsion. It's just, it's just what drives us, moves us in the direction uh, of pleasure or pain. But the next thing that happens, uh, this, is, this is where your mind assembles a program of action. The, the compulsion to pursue pleasure or to avoid pain, the state of agitation and energy and dissatisfaction or suffering or whatever it is, is present. And the next thing that follows will be uh, an, an actual intention that involves some kind of action. And typically, it will involve some sort of object that your mind conceives of as being the instrument for delivering the pleasure, or else it may see it as the instrument that's causing the pain. And then there's the self, the body and the mind that are experiencing the pleasure or the pain. And so the intention arises that this body and mind will perform an action, and that action will cause some sort of effect in terms of the object that's perceived, right? So this is where it becomes concretized. So we may say, you have a craving for chocolate. But if we analyze it closely, what happens is you have a craving for pleasure. And then the idea of eating chocolate arises. And so then the, the, the object, the chocolate, becomes uh, uh, what your mind focuses on and the intention arises to get the chocolate and to unwrap the chocolate and to put it in your mouth and to chew it up. So all the different things that come, and then aha, there's the pleasure, there's the satisfaction. Or it could be much more complicated than that. Uh, the, uh, the object of your desire may be a brand new Lexus that you saw in the showroom. Uh, only thing is that before you can buy it, you've got to make some money. So you go out and, and you do whatever is necessary to make the money, and then you go and you buy the Lexus. Although very often you don't have quite enough money, so you go into debt instead. That's <laughs> so you, you, you already get a little bit of suffering mixed in with the pleasure of driving off the lot in your new Lexus. But, but you, you see the, the idea there. That, 
that uh, the craving is the impulsion. Much more complicated is the actions that follow out of it. But we can break that down in there. there. We'll see that it's not a single action, it's many series of actions, but they're all driven by the same compulsion. And there is a process involved in this. If we look at each of the individual actions, each of the individual actions involves... Here, here you are, you're, you're just a... You're, you're a sentient being who has experienced pleasure or has or e either that or has seen something that you conceive will produce pleasure. And what you want is the pleasure. But the next stage in this where your mind creates a scenario, creates a reality, and creates a path that you can follow and action. This, this, is, a, this is what's called uh, grasping. Funny name for it, isn't it? Uh, that's the transit. We call it grasping because that's the way people have translated the word that the Buddha used, which is upadana. And upadana means fuel. <laughs> and so there's a long, complicated story behind why upadana is translated as grasping. And what and the word grasping doesn't make it really obvious what's happening in the mind. But what's hap what is happening in the mind that we call grasping is that we is that the mind reifies or makes real some idea about the object or the source of the happiness or unhappiness, the source of the pleasure or, or pain. And at the same time, it makes real the idea of a self that is going to do things so that self can experience the pleasure or pain in the future, right? Now, if we go back to the, the dissatisfaction, I said it was resistance. The resistance, what, is, what resistance were we talking about with suffering and dissatisfaction? The resistance to what is in the present moment. So when you're in a state of dissatisfaction, you're resisting what is. You're projecting into a future that will be different than what is. Right? So this is what grasping is, is to make real this idea of the self and this idea of this object that is going to result in, in the uh, gratification that you seek. And this is all about what's happening in the future. So that is described in the sequence as becoming. So, so grasping, craving, then grasping, then craving, then grasping, then becoming. Well, actually, what comes before the craving was the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant, right? So there's the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant, which gives rise to the craving to, to have more of the one or less of the other. And the craving causes the mind to create a reality with a self in the middle of it so that it can plan a course of action. And then it takes an action. Oh, so they're taking the action at the beginning? They're taking the action. Well, the result of the, uh, the taking the action leads to the becoming. Okay, so in the moment of grasping, there is the intention. Now, uh, 
we'll just point out something to you here that is interesting. You know, if uh, you decide to reach out, but if I decide to uh, obtain that bell there, what arises in my mind is the intention. And then I experience the results of the intention. Do, do, does the uh, entity that has the intention extend the arm? Not really. If you pay attention to your actions, you'll see the intention by some mysterious process that we're so used to that we don't even realize how amazing it is. But we intend, I, you know, I intend to stretch my head. Why gosh, it happens. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if what's, what you really notice is you intend to reach for that and it doesn't happen, then you, you notice that something went wrong. But uh, most of the time the intention leads to uh, leads to the action. So, so the becoming is where we end up at the end of the process. We're always becoming. In the next moment, you know, if you want something, then you have the dissatisfaction of being in the state of not having. And you want to try to become to the state of having. First, there will be many intermediate becomings, right? In, in every, and this process takes place over and over again, instant by instant. But, uh, and it's very, uh, the interesting thing about it is what happens in each instant is the same thing what happens in each minute and each hour and each day. Over the longer periods of time, it's the same process. So you, you see something you want, there is the, there is the desire, uh, there is the grasping, and then you, you become the, the being, first of all, you become the being that's in the state of dissatisfaction that wants it. And then the intentions arise and the actions take place. But as a result of that, then you become the being that has this thing. Well then, you have it, and now you don't want to lose it. Or if it's a, a sensory pleasure, you have it, and by the time you're having it, it's already starting to go away. And so you already have to start worrying about the, the next bite or, or the next repetition of the event that gives you the pleasure, right? So the, the period of satisfaction tends to be uh, relatively brief before the next kind of dissatisfaction sets in. And that's the story of our life. And that's, that, this is how the suffering is always present. We're always in some kind of state of dissatisfaction because we are compulsively desiring things that we don't have or desiring to hold on to things that are impermanent or we are, are wishing to eliminate those things that we see as uh, unpleasant or wishing to avoid the experience of those things which are unpleasant. So in this, in this relatively simple story you find the whole of, uh, of the, this truth of uh, dukkha that human existence is permeated by dukkha. And I like my way of putting this truth, which is that pain in life is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And that's because the suffering that we call dukkha is entirely originates in the mind. 
And now that we know what it comes from, we can imagine what it might be like if that origin disappears, and, uh, and, and we'll talk about that. And then we can start working towards how can we make this disappear? How can we make this change? start from where we are, but we're going to work towards getting to that place where there is no, there is no craving. And let's examine this. Let's examine the third noble truth, the cessation of, the cessation of craving, which should produce the cessation of uh, suffering. Yes? Some cravings diminish. <laughs> yeah. Just in general? Just, yeah, yeah, well, certain kinds of cravings diminish. Well, but, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Leticia, what would you say? Does craving diminish as a person gets older? Considering? No. no. That's right. In my case, it's got worse. Yeah. And, but I, I think it's also because. Um, because there's no knowledge, because there's that's, no... That's right. ...in resistance, you know? That's right. Because ignorance, where there's ignorance... In, in some, some people, as they grow older, grow wiser, even without having pursued some spiritual path of training or meditation. They grow wiser, and uh, as a result of that, uh, they, they are less subject to craving. But it's not a universal rule. I mean, if you, if you look, if you, if you were to go out and examine a bunch of people in their 80s, for example, and see if they have left, less craving than you do, they may have different kinds of craving, because that changes. But uh, some of them will have much more intense craving than you. For some, it, craving is one of those things that, that the more it's exercised, the stronger it becomes. It becomes more empowered through uh, 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 being present without restraint. Like many, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Or it's a habit, you know. The, the whatever the neuronal pathway in the brain is that results in craving, it just you know, gets stronger and stronger as years go by. So, so in some people you would find less craving, but in other people you find more craving. So. The passage of time is not, well, it's only a solution in the sense that when you die, 
you know, that master craving. That master craving is cut off. Well, that's what we're going to examine right now. So if if we see that life is is characterized by dukkha, uh, which is the suffering generated by the mind as a result of craving, then uh, the third truth is uh, as about the cessation of craving. So, uh, and, and really, let's put it this way, you know, if we could get rid of craving, what would that be like? Yeah, okay. Now, when you get what you really want, there is a period of time when you experience satisfaction, right? In one form or another, we all know what it's like, at least for a short period of time, to be completely, totally contented. You don't want anything different. You don't want, you know, you, you're just completely, right? Has anybody here never had the experience of feeling, at least for a, a moment, just totally satisfied and contented. That period, you, you've never felt that? Oh, <laughs> Is there anybody that hasn't? I mean, I know it doesn't last very long because that new craving and that new sense of dissatisfaction comes up very quickly. But I mean, I think we all, we've all had it. Some, some, more, some more often than others, but we know what it is. So, in that, in that time, there's no dissatisfaction, there's only satisfaction, right? There's no desire or aversion, there's only contentment, right? So, if, if you've followed the discussion up to this point, then what I hope is obvious is that if indeed there was some way that we could go in and just, you know, take out the craving part and remove it, then what we would experience is that state of satisfaction, pleasure, a kind of blissful contentedness. In theory. But does the theory sound right? That's the question. Based on your experience, does the theory sound right? Get rid of craving, no more dissatisfaction. Right. It does. Now let's extend that. So, to what we were talking about last night, if you have, if you have pain and the suffering you experience, the pain is going to be unpleasant no matter what. Pain in life is inevitable. Suffering is optional. So if you have pain and you have taken the option of removing the craving part of your mind, so that there's no resistance to the pain, there's just acceptance of it, then there would be the unpleasantness of the pain with no additional suffering. Right? Okay, so, you know, this, until we experience it for ourselves, this is theoretical, but it's something that you, that you can experience. Uh, you don't need to be enlightened and have the complete cessation of craving in order to have the experience of a pain that you come into a place for a short period of time of just being in total acceptance and you discover that it's nothing but an unpleasant sensation. It's not suffering. 
it's okay. It's quite, it doesn't disturb your inner peace. You can experience that. That's what we're after there. There is, there is another part of this too. You see, our natural tendency is that even when we're experiencing pleasure, we already know from all of our life's experience that it's fleeting. And so we're already starting to crave the pleasure that we haven't even lost yet. So we're already starting to experience the dissatisfaction that's going to come from its disappearance, even while it's still present. Any, anything, whether it's the pleasure that comes from uh, uh, eating a delicious bite of food, or sex, or getting a new Lexus, whatever it is, the pleasure associated with that will diminish. From, from the time it arrives, it begins to diminish, right? Now, if you have craving, as soon as you sense that fading, you begin to experience a dissatisfaction, a restlessness, wanting, wanting either to hold on to that pleasure or to find some other pleasure to replace it. Is that your experience? If you think about it? Imagine if you had no craving, so that even though the pleasure from this food or this sex or this new Lexus is fading, you could still savor it every moment, even though it's passing away, you could still savor the wonder of that pleasure without being distracted from it, drawn away from it by the worry about the fact that it's going away. So, if you had no craving, you would still experience pleasure and pain. But without craving, what you should find is that pain is no bother, and that not that you don't, you still experience pleasure, there's no reason why the pleasure has gone away, uh, and if anything, you experience it more fully because you're just allowing it to be. You're not grasping onto it. You're not worrying about losing it. You're not reacting to the fact that it is indeed diminishing. Yes? It just seems contradictory to say that you would enjoy but not care if it's gone. Doesn't that seem to be contradictory? That's contradictory to our experience. Yes. Because what happens automatically is that we crave and we grasp. But the result of our craving and our grasping is that we're not even able to fully enjoy the pleasure that we have to the same degree that we would have. But when you enjoy something, that, that means you're glad it's happening. Yes. So suddenly, oh, it stopped. And then, okay, that's fine. Yes, that's that, it. Yes. Can, can you imagine that? Well, I'm trying to. It's, 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 <laughs> not, a part of, it's not a part of, of most of our experience. Yeah, but you know, there are, if you think about it, there are things, there are pleasures that you have that you know it's impossible to hold on to them. And so you just allow yourself to enjoy them without, without the grasping. I mean, the grasping may come a moment later, but you, you manage to defer that craving and grasping 
allow yourself to enjoy this thing because you know you can't hold on. There's no way to hold on to it. You know, the uh, example I used the other day talking to someone is a, a beautiful piece of music and the last note and it's fading off. And it was so enjoyable that you just savor every last bit of it. You know, I mean, you may jump up and say, I've got to buy that CD so I can hear that again. But, you know, you put that off long enough to just be with the experience in the moment. And it is very fulfilling. There's no suffering associated with the fact that it's over with and that it's fading away. You know. Sometimes you can, you know, have that experience that beautiful sunset, and you're standing and you watch the light and the clouds and the water and it's fading and you just, you just be there with it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you say, oh my God, where's my camera? You know. <laughs> Let me, I need to hold on to this, you know. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just, you're there with it and you don't hold on to it and you experience it as fully as you can. So. Well, like the word dispassion. Yes. And some, a, a normal person would, would see dispassion as yeah. kind of, well, not passionate. Yes. And, and that would seem like, hmm, you know, not that good and not passionate. Because there are subtle differences of meanings that you can apply to the same word. When we say dispassionate in that context, we refer the passion that we're referring not being there is the greed and the lust or the hatred and the aversion. Those are the passions that aren't there. Um, and most of the time, the way that we use the word passion, it does, there, there is that, because in most of our behaviors and most of our reactions, there is craving and there is grasping. And so in most uses of the word passion, then it is, it is appropriate and correct. But it's right that you can also, dispassionate, uh, we might say of somebody who is totally without, totally unfeeling, you know, uh, that say, refer to them as dispassionate. It's true that they are dispassionate, they are without passion, but they have another quality there as well, which is they are lacking more than just, than just lust or hatred. They, they are lacking something else. Now, in, in this path, in the Buddha's experience, and in this path, uh, you have to kind of take this on, on faith till you find out for yourself. But a Buddha experiences both pleasure and pain. What a Buddha does not experience is suffering. What has disappeared is craving. So craving is not. Yes? So even after Buddha passes away, dies, uh, the physical body dies, mm -hmm. uh, the Buddha will still feel pleasure and pain? <laughs> the, what was feeling the pain before the Buddha died was the aggregates. Mm -hmm. right. So what this gets into, you know, uh, is what is what is a Buddha? And to answer the question of what is is a Buddha, we have to answer the question of what we are, which is the next place that we want to go with this discussion. It's exactly where we want to go. Well, let's let's okay. talk about where you are, Rick, and 
You see, this is one of the questions that the Buddha was asked. He said, an enlightened being, do they exist or do they not exist after they die? Or do they both exist and not exist? Or do they neither exist nor not exist? Basically covered all the bases. And and this exactly, the situation in in the sutras, in the story, is, you know, this speaker saying, you've got to tell me. I have to know. You know, and I'm not going to be satisfied till you tell me. I need to know. When an enlightened being dies, does, do they exist or do they not exist? And the Buddha refused to answer. On one occasion, he simply turned and walked away. Uh, on other occasions, he was a little more forthcoming. He basically said, there are certain questions which there is no answer to because the question itself is based in misconception. So the question, the questions are, uh, wh- where, did the, where did the world come from? You know, is the world eternal? Is the world infinite? Um, where did I come from? And what will happen to me after I die? And what happens to an enlightened being after they die? This set of four questions. You know, and he said, uh, they're sometimes called the imponderables. But the, the fact is, and this is what we'll talk about, is they, these are questions that come directly out of our misunderstanding of reality, our misunderstanding of the truth. There is not an answer to those questions in the sense that, uh, that is in our mind when we ask those questions. Somebody else asked the Buddha and said, I, you know, about themselves. After I die, will I exist or will I not exist? And the Buddha wouldn't answer that. And instead, uh, Ananda, uh, uh, Ananda went and, and said, well, how, how, you know, now, he thinks you're, now he thinks you don't know what you're talking about because you won't answer his question. How come you didn't tell him? And the Buddha said, if I had said that he exists, then he would have thought that this self, who he thinks he is, would continue after his death, which is not true. Because this self that he thinks he is doesn't even exist now. If I had said that, no, it does not exist, then he would have gone away thinking that the self that he had was going to be destroyed and lost when he died. Both of which are false, both of which would have led him in the wrong direction. And so he said, it's better not to answer the question than to say something that's going to be misunderstood. So when you when you say what happens to the Buddha after he dies, I mean that... Oh, well, I, that that's not my question. I was just asking whether you feel, feel, well, uh, yeah. feel pain or pleasure. But the thing is, you know, yeah, it's... Uh, what feels what feels pleasure and what feels pain right now? Well, we have the senses uh, to tell uh, we have the, the five aggregates. Yeah, right, the yeah. five aggregates. Pain is is part of the bodily sensation and the quality of unpleasantness is is the feeling that arises. As long as there are the aggregates, then 
there are sensations which will produce the, which will have the quality of being pleasant or unpleasant. So while while the Buddha is existing in the world as as a body, you know, and walking around, uh, you know, his cousin Devadatta was very jealous and uh, uh, tried to kill him on several occasions. One time, uh, what he did is he rolled a big rock down uh, a mountain. Uh, the idea of the rock was going to hit the Buddha, crush him, and kill him. But instead, the rock hit another rock and broke into pieces, and a splinter went flying off and hit the foot of the Buddha. And I, I guess it uh, must have cut it pretty badly, and it got infected. So for, there was a period of, of uh, a few weeks there where the, the Buddha was quite uh, had a, had a painful injury to his foot. So that would have produced pain, but he would not have experienced suffering. The mind would have just been in a state of complete acceptance to the physical pain. So while the Buddha's in a body, he can experience both pleasure and pain. You know, uh, somebody serves him. Very often he was invited by uh, people to have a meal with him. And, and some of these people were were kings and, and wealthy merchants. And in the sutras, there's a description of the lavish meals that they were presenting. And so the pleasure of the food would have been experienced, but without the attachment to it and without the craving. So both the pleasure and the pain were there. But when we talk about when the five aggregates break up, then there's not anything there to experience the pleasure and the pain which are unique to the physical to the rupa, uh, to the aggregate of, of rupa or form. Okay? But yeah, we, we, where we need to go with this next is, okay, when you experience pleasure or pain, who is experiencing the pleasure or pain? The reason that we need to go into this is I'm not sure that we really satisfied ourselves, but I hope we did. Did we satisfy ourselves that if we could eliminate craving, it would be a good thing? It would be blissful? No matter what happened to us, it wouldn't disturb our blissful happiness, right? We had no craving. But we could still enjoy the ice cream, right? Because then we could still enjoy the ice cream, right? But we wouldn't care whether we dropped it on the ground or not. It's there, it's there, it's gone, it's gone. No attachment. So there's no Hard to imagine, but you can see the advantages. Yeah, you can see the advantages. You can see the advantages. Okay, you can see the advantages. Right, the problem we're left with is, great, how do we get rid of the craving? And we don't, obviously we're not able to just turn it off. We say, oh, that's my problem. I'm just going around craving. I'm not going to crave anymore. And problem solved, right? Except we know that that won't work. So we need to we need to pursue it to the next level. The next level, uh, craving, desire, and aversion, are one of the three uh, unwholesome roots of uh, of our experiences and our actions. The third unwholesome root is is ignorance, and what it said of the relationship between the three is that. Wherever there is ignorance, there will be desire or aversion or sometimes both. You know, 
craving will be present. It depends on, on ignorance. And this, this ignorance is, uh, this is what we will pursue next. The ignorance, very specifically, is the regarding the true nature of reality. It's ignorance of the true nature of things, of the way things really are. We currently experience an illusion. The illusion that we experience is that we are, that I, myself, is one kind of object existing in a world of objects. That is the illusion. Now that doesn't mean that, that I don't exist, but what it means is what I'm referring to with the word I is not the kind of self that our mind thinks it is. Our mind creates an idea of a kind of self and a feeling of being a kind of self that is not genuine. It's not what we really are. The mind creates an idea of a world made up of things that we are separate from and that we interact with. And that is, that too, is an illusion. And so the Buddha's teaching is that if we can gain insight, if we can see the truth beyond this illusion, the effect that will have is to cut off the root of craving. With the ignorance gone, then it becomes possible to uproot the craving, to, to, to destroy it. And we can come to that place of being free of craving. Yes? Just out of curiosity, how, this, how come everybody believes there's a self, but when you ask them to define it, none of them makes sense? Mm -hmm. So how, how, what are some of the characteristics of, of, of this? What, is, what are some of, the, you know, some of the key components of this uh, ignorance of, of believing there's a self? What are some of the key components that, that you can, can describe some of the key components? One of the greatest things people have about the misconception of the self. Well, <clears throat> uh, we'll probably have to continue this tomorrow. Sure. That's all right. You know, we're, not, uh, we're not under the wire yet. <laughs> I still got a little bit of time yet. Um, oh, there's a question over, over there. Just, just what we're going to to do is specifically look at the ideas that we have of the kind of self that we are, and the and what are the ways in which that is wrong. The ideas we have of the kind of world we live in and the kind of objects that make it up, and specifically how they're wrong. And then also where the mind comes up with this illusion. So that's what we're okay. going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, could we and do we have to know the pressure is come with the craving? Do we have to know that the pleasure and could we? Could we know and do we have to know that the pleasure is uh, and the craving same time? Oh, the pleasure and the craving yeah. that they come. So we can appreciate them, you know, when they come. I, I think I think maybe what she's saying is, can we just, you know, should we know 
about the, the differences and, and should, should, you know, is it possible to be aware of the differences? Yes, 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 absolutely, it is. And this is, this is, part, of the, uh, this is part of the practice and the training. As your mind becomes clear and sharp and stable, you can examine your experiences of pleasant and unpleasant and you can you can see clearly the pleasantness or the unpleasantness and then you can see following that the reaction of the mind, the, the craving. And as you watch you'll see the craving leads to the grasping. So you can it can see that. It is possible to that to see that. And we should try to see that. And of course the way to see that is is to, to look for it. We're constantly having pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Last night we were talking about if you have a pain in your body when you're meditating, and your mind is calm and it's clear, that's a very good time to look at the pain and see there's the sensation and then there's the unpleasant quality to, of it. And then you can see the mind's reaction to that as being something separate. The craving to have the pain go away, you can see that as being separate from the unpleasantness. And then at other times, like during the meditation, when you go to eat lunch, your mind is still clear and focused. And if you stay clear and focused, if you move slowly and very mindfully, and you take a bite of some food, and it's pleasure, pleasant, you can experience the pleasantness and you can see the craving as being something separate that comes up separate from the actual pleasantness itself. And so you want to do that. Yes, you want to do that. When you can do that, you're now practicing, uh, you're, you're practicing insight. You're beginning to, to see things as they really are. Okay? This is happening all of the time. So you have unlimited opportunities. Almost every moment of your life is an opportunity to see these things and to satisfy yourself that they're true. Because no matter how clearly I might describe this, no matter how clearly somebody might describe this in a book you read, there is nothing like seeing it for yourself and having that experience of, ah, it's really true. This is really what's happening. And the more often you see it, the more you understand. And the, the more, the, the better your understanding is that, ah, oh, this is really true. This is not just a nice fairy story that we're being told. <laughs> okay? All right. Well, thank you very much. And I'm going to suggest that uh, we take a little break right now maybe uh, five, 10 minutes, whatever it is. Uh, uh, well, actually this bell's gonna ring in 15 minutes.